Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Carl Lankford. He is joined by John Haas, the COO of AMSO, to talk about building a world-class virus replicator with spare computer parts, the importance of independent testing labs, and how more collaboration can help improve the cybersecurity industry. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. So uh, I'm John Hawes. Um, I've been involved in anti-malware testing for more than 20 years now um, in various roles. I've, I've been on the vendor side. I've been with independent test labs. Uh, my main gig the last five years now uh, has been running the anti-malware testing standards organization, um, which is a, a nonprofit promoting better testing, basically. Incredible. And um, be really interested for our listeners. How uh how did you first get involved with technology? What sparked your interest? Well, actually, I was always interested as a kid. Um, my my dad was a primary school teacher, and he was the, the one who he, he did all the science side of things. So he got to bring home cool stuff during the school holidays because you know it's much safer at someone's house than yep. in an empty school. <laughs> so we had you know one year we one summer we had a VCR, which was really exciting, except we only had one tape. Um, but then a couple of holidays we had a the BBC computer, which was Great, and I love that. Mainly, mainly playing games on it. Obviously, the you know tanks shooting over mountains and that kind of thing. But uh, but they also they had a a turtle. Did you ever play with the turtle? No. It was it's... like it was like a a perspex dome with wheels, and like a big really fat ribbon cable connecting it to the BBC. And you could basically program into it. It'd be like you know, go forward six, turn right ninety, drop pen, draw a picture on paper pick up pen, turn right, that kind of thing. And you could basically program it. You'd type in a string of stuff and say, go and see if you got it right, basically, which I that was, I guess that was my kind of first introduction to what computers could do. Oh, that sounds really fun. I think uh, it, yeah, it immediately oh, felt good, like it would be tool. a better artist than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it was very different because you're always doing it on a carpet as well. So a piece of paper on a carpet is never a good thing to draw on. Yeah, it just pushes it but, around, uh, I guess. Like, yeah, and yeah, stab holes in it and stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. But um, but yeah, that was I guess that was my 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 first introduction, and then from there on, like you know, ZX Spectrums, little rubber keypad, and that kind of thing. And then yeah, then kind of got out of it for a while. I guess I was kind of playing football and girls and alcohol and stuff like that. And then didn't really use computers at all until after university, and then just kind of accidentally really staggered back into it. Oh wow. So you never really thought while you were at university that your career was going to be kind of surrounded no, by IT. No, and I, and so this would have been well, the mid nineties, and it was the time the kind of internet and email was all kind of taking off. But I don't know, I was I was far too busy with other things, so I wasn't paying much attention to that at all. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until after university and I you know needed a job, went to a temp agency and did a string of uh, sort of two three month contracts and various things. I worked in a company making precision instruments like um particle beam splitters and space mirrors and things like that and i worked in their, their archive room basically building a database of all their old blueprints of all this weird stuff which was really fun like going through these random boxes and going what is this and putting it in a database which they would then use to find anything or anything if i had to rebuild the hubble space telescope or something they'd have the the blueprints for the mirrors that they would built there that's amazing 
But um, yeah, somehow that that qualified me as computer guy. So then when I went back to the temp agency, they were like, oh, we've got another company. It's a record shop. They need a database doing. So I did that and then ended up at a company doing um, educational computers, both hardware and software. And I was I was testing their school software, which was fairly informal, but it was like taking a, a kind of souped up version of paint with big friendly buttons for kids and just playing with it as hard as you could and trying to break it, basically. Like oh, drawing the most complicated picture you could, using every paintbrush and every color and every other feature and all in one canvas and then seeing if it would explode. So that was, uh, that was my introduction to testing, I guess. Did you uh, did you ever draw anything really nice with the uh, trying to break things? Um, I I got pretty good at some of the some of the tools were pretty pretty advanced. So yeah, there was uh, there, there was a guy who sat next to me who was doing like photorealistic pictures of his his like computer setup, his desk basically. He was just drawing it on screen pixel by pixel oh over several months. And I was like, well, I'm not sure you're actually testing it out that thoroughly there, but it's a great picture. Yeah, you've done you've done well. Right, this is this is an, a piece of art now, but. Um... QA yeah. maybe not. <laughs> yeah, but it was. It wasn't just. It wasn't just paid. Obviously, there was all kinds of different software that they provided for schools. That uh, we and and you know a little bit of security stuff as well. You know, sort of locking down the system so that kids couldn't access stuff they shouldn't do. So that was, I guess, my first introduction to to security as well was trying to break that stuff. And then how how did that spiral to kind of where you are today? Again, entirely by accident. Um, I was talking to a guy in the pub. It was, I think, it was about my then partner's work drinks thing, and I was at the girlfriend, girlfriends, and boyfriends table. I was chatting to this guy, and he was like, "Hey, the company I'm I'm working for is, needs some testers. Do you want to come and get a proper job?" And I was like, "Okay." So I went and uh, joined this company, and I was there five years testing their antivirus products. Oh wow! And the kind of it was. Um, release testing so it wasn't the sort of incremental QA that goes on while products are being developed it was this the monthly cycle of it was back in the day when you know your your updates for your antivirus still came in the post on a floppy disk <laughs> or moving into CDs by then i guess but yeah. Um, yeah it was and every build that went out had to be thoroughly tested against the full set of of QA procedures that we had there including i think certainly in the early days scanning every known sample of malware in existence which um was was doable for a year or two but by i guess yeah early 2000s it really started ticking up i think at the time it was sort of a few a few tens of thousands and then suddenly there's a few hundred thousand and then we're looking at i don't even know what it is today it's like millions per month coming out so it's that would be completely unmanageable yeah, particularly These one days, by one, but, um, like a very linear but, process uh, to see if it's flagged. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was even then. It was, it was, that was the main focus of the work. Really, was kind of building up the cap capacity to be able to do that. That you know, a build comes out, you want to get it out the door as quickly as possible. You don't want to sit there waiting while this machine chugs through hundreds of thousands of samples to detect. So you know, you know, distributing it, speeding up the machines, that kind of thing. Amazing. So that was quite uh, quite interesting work as well. And also, we were working on lots of different platforms because the, the the company supported dozens of versions of Linux and Unix and really obscure stuff like um, old OS two and Open VMS and things like that. 
and that was for some reason that became my specialty area. I was I was the non Windows guy, and non Windows included everything apart from Windows and Mac for some reason. All right. So uh, yeah, I got to play with with AIX and HPUX and Solaris and all these things, which was yeah fun times. All, all the fun ones and the pretty ones to look at. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the pain in the ass ones to play with as well. Netware, always hated netware. Oh my god! Oh gosh, I've got some dark stories about netware, which we'll, uh, we'll have to say for the <laughs> public. Sure, don't bring them up. Don't bring them up. Yes. So it's almost keep them, like yeah, well post netware disorder. <laughs> <laughs> gosh, and then um, more more recently, I, I saw you've kind of we'll, we'll touch on the the work you've done with malware and testing in quite some depth. But um, I've seen you. You're actually at a company called TikTok Social, which is your organisation. Yeah, yeah. Is that well, the TikTok? Is that different? <laughs> it, it is different. Although we do occasionally get emails from we have people saying, "I'm suing you because you've published pictures of my daughter without her permission." And we politely email back saying, "I don't think you've got the right TikTok." Yeah, definitely not us. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, TikTok's been going. Well, our our TikTok Social has been going for. Probably almost ten years now. My wife set it up originally. Um, she she's also in the security industry, and she she left her. She was working for one of the big big security firms and branched out to set up on her own. And she set up TikTok to do that from. Um, she does a lot of consultancy work, writing that kind of thing. But uh, most importantly, she she runs the uh, Smashing Security podcast, ah. which is. Um, part of what we do at TikTok. And uh, yeah, then when I decided to to go it alone as well, which was five years ago now, I, I basically became a, a co-director at the, the company. So we, we work together, we kind of share admin tasks, although somehow I end up doing most of the uh, invoicing and financial bits like that. That's because you're the computer guy. <laughs> uh, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I am, I'm unofficial CTO as well. So I, I'm always called into... Uh, fix any computer issues which can be tricky i'm not really a mac person and she's a very mac person so uh, like, how do i do this on a mac and i'm like i don't know can we open a terminal c command space i'm sure it will search and find for you yeah <laughs> no i usually i usually i usually resort to uh, old unix commands uh, i'm like well it's under here somewhere so surely i can find it yeah mostly works and, and so yeah you said you are uh, sort of uh, smashing podcast security what, what other stuff do tiktok social do um, well, obviously, my my current gig at uh, at Ampso is is done through I'm a, as a consultant for, for via TikTok Social. Um, I do a bit of writing stuff on the side. That was another string to my bow a while ago. I I did a few years writing for the Naked Security blog. Okay, yeah, it was uh, it was quite big back in the day. Um, three or four years I worked for them, and that was that was quite fun as well. Sort of. Finding interesting stories in the in the security space, so it meant you you keep up with all the news that's everything big that's going on, but you're also kind of squirreling down and trying to find the the weird stuff that no one else has reported yet, or that might be of particular niche interest to your audience, but hasn't really been big enough to make it in any of the bigger outlets. And uh, and then also on the other other side, kind of taking whatever big stories have come out and kind of giving them an interesting spin. Kind of think pieces on them, which was very enjoyable, and uh, and yeah, I like writing, so I, I try and keep that up. I try and have a few side gigs going because because it helps to keep on top of the news mm -hmm. and you know, get a bit of money out of it as well. Always good fun as well. Have you had any, um, I guess, niche or 
strange stories. What, what's been one of your favourites? Um, oh, I was just—I was reminded of one the other day. There was, uh, do you know what? Do you know the term four twenty? It's a, a reference to marijuana. Oh, in as in uh, yes, <laughs> okay. Yeah, and there was there was a great one where there was a uh, I think it was a hotel or something in uh, in Nigeria, and someone complained about the smell of marijuana coming out of this this uh, cabin, I guess it was, or a hotel room. And so the police raided, and they found inside a major four one nine scam operation. Oh. Wow! So it had the the excellent headline came for a four twenty. You got a four one nine. I like that. <laughs> yeah. What are the chances of that actually happening? Just yeah, you'd think, right? Yeah. You'd be more careful if you if you're doing a big scam. Yeah, a couple of scammers don't, don't just make a big stink. Smoking some weed, chilling out. Yeah. Like, gosh, what a way to end that. <laughs> hmm. And I did another one. I can't think what it was about. It was something to do with the U.S. military, though. Some there was some I don't know flaw in there. Your army computer login system that was easily bypassable or something. So I just wrote this kind of throwaway story on it. But I guess it got kind of passed to, to, to some army forum. And then suddenly the next thing I knew, it had a million hits. And I was like, whoa. Oh, wow. That's, that's rather a lot because I, I, I expect my average story was more like 10,000 or something at most. Gosh. Going viral. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's but incredible. Only with a very specific audience of uh, angry American men. Yeah, sort of a, a million of the U.S. Army's finest just having a quick yeah. read of your news story and, and bypassing authentication. That's a, mm. yeah, a good start. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you said one of the things you enjoyed about continuing your writing was it, it helps you stay on top of what's going on in the industry. Um, are there any other ways that you could kind of share uh, that with, with our guests that you stay on top of things in the industry? Mainly talking to people, to be honest, um, and in my, my current role, and in fact, in my previous one as well at uh, Virus Bulletin, there was a lot of, of interaction with people all over the industry, certainly the, the vendor side, the security companies, you have to work with them on a daily basis, and it's mainly the engineers that I tend to work with. So they um, they like to gossip, and they say, did you see this that happened to that other company? And you're like, yes, <laughs> well, slightly, but tell me all about it. So you kind of get uh, all the all the kind of inside secrets, which is kind of nice. It's like being in the uh, in the smoking area in a big office. You kind of hear about what's going on in all the other departments that no one else hears about. Oh, that's incredible! I, lo- I love that frame of reference as well. It's the sort of the, the modern day water coolers that the security team know all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, amazing! And then, kind of in you sort of touched on it briefly there into kind of the meat of the the exciting pieces of your career. Phoebe, uh, Virus Bulletin, like, tell us more. Yes. So I moved there from the so the, the QA role. I was, I was at uh, Sophos, um, and VB is, has a kind of connection to Sophos. There's like, I think they call them sister companies or something, or used to be. They certainly have the same founders. Um, and the, the guy who ran the VB testing side, used a corner of our test lab oh. for years. And for, for a while, was actually my upstairs neighbor as well. And Small we world. Always like, That's oh, Oxford chess guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. But I didn't really know who he was for, for the first year or two, but eventually got to know him and figured out what was going on. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then when he left, they were like, um, we need someone that can take over this job. And I was like, Sounds like I could probably do it, I reckon. It's kind of similar to what I've been doing the last four or five years at Sophos. 
So yeah, I, I went and did that and I, I ran the BB100 certification program for 10 years or so. And the last two or three years I was helping run the company as well. Wow. So that was, uh, yeah, quite, quite fun stuff. I also I contributed a little bit to the, the conference side of things, which is probably what they're best known for. The VB conference is, is a pretty big thing in the anti-malware industry. Um, and that was, that was always fine. I, Never really had to work on it very hard. They had a, like a team of, of people, who most of them were still still there, still helping run the conference. But as a uh, you know, member of the member of the team, I got to tag along. And there's nothing uh, gets you a hotel room upgrade more than bringing a couple of hundred people and spending a couple hundred grand on catering. <laughs> give you some, give you some really nice rooms. Well, that's uh, that's certainly a, a side perk. Not expected, but wonderful when it happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And not always necessary. I mean, I, I once had, uh, I think it was in, in Dallas, I had a, a dining table for 12 people in my hotel room. And I'm like, mm, table for one, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't think I really need that, but okay. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and w was it at VB where you started to build your world-class virus replicator then? <laughs> you, you mentioned kind I, of I scale being an issue earlier. I, yeah. I don't know if, if world-class is the right term, but uh, yes, we certainly, so yeah, that was a big part of what I was doing at VB, so the, the certification test, the VB100, um, one of the major parts of it was the, the the core certification set of malware samples, which came from the wild list. Um, and we had a process. So I started there in 2006, and I think I was on my own for the first two or three years and then started hiring hiring assistants and helpers which really helped a lot but we we had a very small budgets and as I say very small team and I'd kind of been used to being in a much bigger company where if you need a new machine you could say oh my machine is old and it just send someone around with a fresh one and they were great but uh, in 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 situation we didn't really have that we were in a tiny little test lab as well it was basically a, a repurposed meeting room oh wow Barely really had the aircon to to cope with all the machines we had stacked up in there, but um, but yeah, a lot of the work involved was validating the samples, basically making sure that they were malicious and actually you know valid samples that that could be used in a test set. And if we went to a vendor and said, "Look, you're missing the sample," they wouldn't just turn around and go say and say, "Ha ha, that's rubbish," um, which was a lot of manual work because we had to kind of sit there and, and try and get them to execute, figure out what they were expected to do, try and get them to do it, and then say, check, that one's definitely good, put it in, next. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out ways of automating this stuff. Um, we started with, well, just the, the process of, of cleaning up the machines, because, you know, once you've put a piece of malware on the machine, you want to make sure it's clean again before you do anything else, because yeah. otherwise... Anything that comes after is going to be tainted. Um, so we had lots of different ways of doing that, but then we, we figured out that, that we built a very, very, very quick and dirty system where uh, the machines would basically boot into Linux, rewrite the, the Windows partition completely, and then boot back into Windows. It's very just, just a, a um, grub config file that got dropped in to change which way it booted. Um, and then we thought, while we're doing that, we're like, oh, hang on, we're, we're in this Linux machine and we've got access to the hard drive, so we can just drop anything in there we want and pull anything off there that we want. 
so we put in we have a bunch of standard goat files they were called which were like the targets for infections this was as i say yeah 2008 so one of the things that had started coming back having been disappeared for years were were true viruses mm. that would actually infect other files and then cause them to go on and infect other files if they got executed which was actually much easier to for us to validate than anything else because you know exactly what they're going to try and do yeah and if you you don't really care about any they might do lots of other things as well but you don't really have to care about that because you you can see as soon as they've infected another file that's a naughty thing and this then your sample is therefore confirmed bad and you can use it in your test and I think they, the the kind of resurgence, it was something to do with Chinese file shares. That's what people used to say anyway, that the, these file infectors were kind of spreading across these huge file shares that they were using in China to share all kinds of stuff. And some of them were quite prolific. There was one called uh, Fujax, and if you remember that, it was the, the panda-waving jostics <laughs> virus. <laughs> and it would just infect just about anything, and then it changed the icon to this little picture of a panda-waving jostics. But that was, a, that was a very basic one. It, it basically just inserted a copy of itself. So it was obvious and very simple to detect and obvious to pick up as a user as well because you could see the icon had changed. But some of them were more sneaky. So there were a lot of the, the polymorphic viruses which would fiddle themselves a little bit so they looked a little different every time. So we built a process to validate and replicate them at the same time. Oh, yeah. So normally with a file infector, we would, we would generate maybe a few dozen at most because it takes time and then we'd have to go through and then validate all the ones that we'd created or not really created but caused to be created by the the, the malware itself and um that would that would be in itself be a couple of days work for for one or two of us and if there were 20 or 30 of these things in each monthly set to to prepare then that was basically most of your month gone so we built this system and it basically it, it did it all for us. It would simply we would drop in the reference sample that we got from the, the wild list and then let it run and anything that changed on the machine we would take take off and then we would pick one of those at random and drop them back into the clean machine, let it cycle around and cycle around. And as soon as you've got a chain of three changed files, you know that the first one infects the second one and is therefore bad. And then when you get the third one, you know that the second one has been infected with infectious code and is therefore definitely, it's it's a working thing. So we would take this chain, we would take off the top two and the bottom two and all the ones in the middle were proven, validated and good to go. And this, we spent quite a lot of time kind of refining the process, trying to get it as fast as possible it was very it was very very simple and it was the days it was still windows xp in those days so it was possible to get quite a small install i think it was 800 meg or something mm -hmm. our, our optimal ones that we went for i think you could get smaller than that but you didn't want to lose too much functionality and we would had a pretty basic minimal linux as well to boot into so and then we got the cycle of from from dirty back to clean down to it was about a minute and a half it was pretty speedy wow and this was not on on you know high quality fast modern hardware this was on scavenged kit that, that someone else had thrown away basically 
and we had to go around, you know, going on eBay to try and find obscure memory to get it a bit, a little bit better, things like that. But gosh, yeah, I think I'm sure. I'm sure today with with SATA drives and yeah. things like that, it would be. Right. Way, Imagine way how better. much faster that is on solid, solid state. state. Just yeah, gosh, yeah. yeah. And actually, I've seen several years later, um, someone from Bitdefender gave a presentation on a similar kind of system that they use for their their. Uh, Sample analysis, I guess, mostly, but um, but yeah, and they're using they have these SSDs and the super fast networking and everything. And they're sort of like this, and it blasts this quickly through this stuff. I'm like, oh, if only I'd had that yeah. five years ago, it would have been way better. The dream, but um, yeah, but it it worked. It was good enough, right? So, say ten minutes cycles, you can pack a lot of those in to a to a weekend, mm. and uh, so we ended up. We, we changed our system. So instead of having a few dozen samples of each of these polymorphic viruses in our sample set, we went up to, I think it was 2,500 we used. And rather than them being one or two generations away from the original, they were up to 2,500 generations because we only took one from each generation. And that, it turned out, was a really serious test of some of the products. Because even though these were really quite old school and fairly basic polymorphic viruses that everyone thought, yeah, we totally detect them. We're totally fine with them. It turns out quite a few products were not quite perfect on all of them, which is exactly what the certification test is meant to find out. But it turns out we were maybe a little too effective at finding it out. <laughs> and we had several of our of the, the largest companies suddenly finding themselves not passing the certification. I think one of them had... had they were just about to celebrate 10 years of passing every month or every every other month, however often we ran it. When then suddenly we were like, um, excuse me, uh, it seems to be a small problem here. And uh, yeah, not everyone took it very well. A lot of them were like, no. this is nonsense. What are you talking about? It's not possible. How can you even say that? And, we, and then we had to go and prove it, right? So it's not good enough just to say this virus 26, you're not quite getting it fully, we have to show them that, but we had a policy that we would never give the samples that we used in our test set to vendors because they could simply fix They just write a sample. signature, surely, yes. Yeah. yeah. So then we would have to take the one that they'd missed and feed it back through the system and then churn out more until we found another one that they didn't detect. And quite often... In fact, I think in at least four or five cases, we had to generate more than a million new samples just to find another one that was that had whatever the feature was that they weren't picking up. And in fact, in one case, we churned out a million and we found one they didn't detect. They, we sent it over and they looked at it and we're like, oh my God, yes, we totally see it now. We'll fix it. Send over the fix and say, okay, check it now. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, that detects the one we sent you, but not the original one. So we have to do another million or so and find another one so it was uh we basically made a lot of work for ourselves and didn't really make <laughs> a lot of friends but i think basically the 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 point of it is that it's kind of what what i do now is all about really amso is the importance of these small independent testing labs because if you're you know making a product and you have a qa team in a big company, you're looking at dozens, possibly even hundreds of people working on that. Yeah. 
But the fact that a tiny team of two guys in a tiny room with a tiny budget can find problems that they weren't finding kind of shows the the importance of that kind of approach of little people focusing on little things and kind of piercing through this huge fat armor and saying, there's a problem, which I think is very important. Yeah, it absolutely is. And uh, you know, I've got this, this kind of vision building in my head of you're in a small office, you've got your kind of scavenged computer collection and, and you're looking for you're looking for the exhaust vent of the Death Star, right? That's like mm. quite a fun and exciting sort of place to be. And that's probably just got our, our podcast delisted for referencing that. But it's <laughs> um it just sounds so so exciting and thrilling when you must have had those sort of winning moments of, hey, actually, we've really solved a big problem in the world. Um were, were there many of those kind of big problems? They weren't usually huge problems, I guess. Okay. That was the thing that, that it's it's more so. In that case, you know, it's like this obscure little virus, and it's one sample of it, and it's quite possible that no one else ever saw a sample that had those characteristics anywhere in the world. And if they did, they may have had a different product that actually did detect it, so it may not have got through. But but um, but yeah, no, we did regularly. You know, we found and that the idea of the test was it's supposed to be easy. Right. Everyone yeah. has the samples ahead of time. It's like, you know, you've already got a copy of the exam paper before you go and sit down. You expect it to pass. That's that's the kind of point. But you'd still, yeah, we would find people that were were, were missing things. And uh, and then on the flip side also, that was the, the main reason that people didn't get the certification was for false positives. So that was another area where we worked on a lot was just trying to harvest as much stuff as we could like of of legitimate clean software and mm. then seeing if anybody picked up any of that and that was also a source of lots and lots of arguments as well because people would be like this is pretty obscure this is like a weird russian notepad executable that has only ever been seen on two machines in the world and you're like, yeah, okay maybe that's not significant enough to deny certification perhaps but so there's a kind of double thing of, of a trying to get as much stuff as possible but also trying to make sure that it's at least reasonably meaningful, mm. which is which can be very difficult. Like there's not an enormous amount of well, certainly back then, there wasn't an enormous amount of information on you know how many people are using a given piece of software. It's pretty hard to find out unless you're unless you're Microsoft, I guess. Yeah, probably. Very, yeah, very few places collecting information and systems management yeah. at the kind of early yeah, foundations like, as well. Yeah, even things like the the big download sites. It would say you know this thing has been downloaded. 12 million times. Does that mean it's got 12 million users? Is that a lot? I don't what, know. One very exciting user who downloads it every day <laughs> yeah. for 25 Could years. Be. Why not? <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. um, you said there, you know, I'm thinking about this and trying to think of what that must have felt like for you. you know, in a room, on your own, separate systems, everything kind of fully segregated. Did, did the work ever become quite isolating? It could do, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, just, it was certainly the first two or three years I was I was literally in that room on my own, and we had to keep the door locked because you know they yeah. had very strict rules. We were you know we were, our, our offices were being hosted by a security company, and they were like, we don't want your stuff coming near any of our stuff, so yeah. you know, keep well away. And they had their own you know pretty extreme policies for you know the, we were right next door to the virus lab, so the, the, the process of getting stuff in and out of the virus lab was always. Pretty, pretty arduous to make sure that nothing ever got out that shouldn't do. So we had to do that. And yeah, it, 
but you know, I'm 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 quite happy sitting on my own for, for three or four hours at a time. And and also I guess part of the benefit of having being hosted inside the, a big company, especially one where I'd I'd already worked for five years, I knew a lot of people there. So ah, yeah. Yes, going going for a smoke break or going down the cafeteria for a sandwich or something, it was always uh, it was kind of like, yes, like like sitting at a desk and not keeping your headphones on and not talking to people really. It was the only difference. I just I just had a door. Amazing. And then I, w- I was thinking about this as well. And obviously, start, starting with your kind of scavenge equipment to test across major operating systems and, and look for these. As we've kind of shifted on and technology's changed, so has our attack surface. Um, and I saw that there's some standards that have recently been published around testing IoT devices. Do you know anything yes. around how that came out and what, what's sort of shifting there? Um, well, that's 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 come out of AMSO, basically. So we set up AMSO 2008. Um, I, well, v- VB was a, a founder member, and I was very much involved right from the very beginning. Um, I sat on the board of directors for a couple of spells. Um, I was chair of the board of directors for a little while. Um, and throughout that time, that's one of the big focus of the, the organization was creating these kinds of guidelines and standards for how to test these specific areas. So like, I know back in when we were first starting out, people were just starting to use the cloud. So the, your AV could, could look stuff up remotely rather than having a local database of stuff. And we were like, okay, so how, how is this going to impact testing? How do we make sure that this is properly tested? And we would get together the vendors and, and the testers who were who knew the most about that kind of stuff. And we would sit them in a room and basically bang their heads together until they came up with a set of guidelines that everyone could agree with, which was not always easy. But uh, I think we did, a, we did a remarkable job, given that it's, it's a lot of these people are, are business rivals, basically, and not necessarily that keen on sharing all the, their inside information. And even on the testing side, you know, you, you don't want to let your fellow testing labs know that you've got a big a new idea coming out in a couple mm. of months because they might gazump you. Um, but that's, I think that's what AMSO has always been about, has been getting that collaboration going and saying, look, this is going to benefit you all, so you might as well contribute to it. And uh, yeah, so the IoT paper was, that's the I think it's the most recent one we've published. It was only a few months ago. We did, um, we had a, I think it was a presentation from one of our members at, uh, we do these testing town hall events. We've been doing them through the, the pandemic while the, we couldn't have in-person meetings. So we have this, sort of mini conferences where we get sort of three or four people to come and give a presentation on something vaguely related to testing. But, um, but yeah, we had this guy talking about IOT security products and, you know, they're claiming to be the be all and end all, and they're going to completely protect your, your premises or your whatever from, from IOT based threats. Can anyone prove that please? And we were like, oh, that's a good question. So, yeah, we got together a little Tiger team. We had a couple of guys, uh, well, one of the guys who was running the Avast IoT lab, um, who's now is actually branched out on his own and is on our the AMSO board of directors now. But uh, he, he basically drove the product project along because he knew all about this stuff. Um, we had an input from various testers, and we, we reached out to people outside of AMSO who were kind of, specializing in IOT security 
And it turns out it's a, it's a much bigger industry than I expected. I was thinking it's going to be, you know, like the the standard players that you would expect, mm. you know, sticking a bit of extra stuff onto a, a router or something and saying, okay, now you're protected. But there's those companies who are like, okay, if you have a hospital and you have a, a Leonardo machine that you're using to perform surgery remotely, you need to be sure it's safe and mm -hmm. we'll do that for you. And you know, as, as, a, as a tester, my question is always, can you prove that? Um, so yeah, we basically produced this set of guidelines to say that this is things you need to look out for in when you're testing that kind of stuff. And obviously it's a very, it's a very broad area, I say, ranging from you know, protecting your, your doorbell to a nuclear power station. It's, it's quite a big difference. You're not going to, hopefully you're not going to be using the same product for that. So it's, it's necessarily quite broad ranging and we try to cover as much ground as possible. But uh, and I, I I hope we will continue that project and and sort of make more kind of targeted ones for the more specific sectors it will uh, come out eventually as well. You, you kind of read into my mind a bit there where you're talking about the types of devices because one of the follow-on questions I had from that for you is have you thought about those types of standards for medical devices in particular as it seems to be quite a target-rich environment for for threat actors at yeah. the moment. Yeah, well that's that's the the thing with. Actually, a lot of the stuff that we talk about, certainly within AMSO, is aiming to be sort of non-technology specific. Okay. Um, is not to say, you know, okay, if you have a product of this type, this is what it should do and this is how it should work. We try to say, okay, if you're going to secure something, we don't really care how you do it. We just want to see if it's effective or not. And that kind of approach tends to make it more flexible so that you can cover different kind of verticals. Um, and that's that's very much what we focus on in the, certainly in the IoT paper was on securing the infrastructure rather than the actual tools themselves. So we don't talk about, you know, is this particular type of doorbell more secure than this type of doorbell? But is this product which is offering to make your doorbell secure better than this one? And, uh, yeah, but I, I certainly imagine I've seen the size of the medical area it's, and how much it's, how quickly it's growing. I, I can easily see that being something that we would have to do something specific about at some point because once it gets big enough, you kind of have to, to have something more focused. Yeah, yeah. And I very much, I've, I'm not actually aware of any testing going on in that specific area you know there there, there have been a few small tests of more general jet mostly home user iot security stuff but um it's definitely something we need to have because otherwise how how are we going to know if these things are any good it's going to be critical i think is the more kind of the more connected we get like we, we have yeah. to ask these difficult questions right yeah once all our cars start driving themselves kind of there's a lot lot to worry about there <laughs> Sarah it's gosh I mean it sounds like you've had like the most in incredible kind of broad career and you've shifted from deep technical work into management roles as you've kind of shifted across that what what are some of the bigger challenges you faced with almost picking up the operations side versus the technical side um the the money stuff I guess that was always like suddenly going from my 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 the impact of money on my working life is can i have this much this year please yes no to suddenly here are 27 different things that we need to spend on here are 10 different things that we're getting money from 
and how do we balance that all out? And yeah, and doing that while still doing the job was particularly difficult, especially in this in in, in testing because you're basically saying this person is good or bad, while at the same time saying this person is going to give you money or not. So kind of avoiding any kind of uh, inappropriateness there was was quite difficult. So we tried, certainly by, by the time I was kind of managing the uh, the money side of VB, we pretty well separated, you know, the people who knew who were paying for various services that we provided from the people who were doing the testing work because they didn't need to know. Yeah. So, uh, that, but... But while it was just one person, that was very difficult, obviously. So you kind of relied on your kind of personal integrity, that kind of thing. Yeah, having, I think having the remains, utmost integrity is key there, I think. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, you kind of have to be beyond reproach because as yes. soon as somebody, as soon as you, you do a bad thing and someone finds out about it, you can't ever do anything else because no one's going to trust you anymore. Yeah. Which is another big thing that we, we still have an issue with in AMSO today. We have a lot of people who don't trust testers because they say, well, if you're getting paid by vendors, then how can I, how can I trust you're independent? Mm. And that's another, another part of what AMSO has been trying to do is to, to help the testers demonstrate that they're being transparent, that they're saying what they're doing, what they say they're going to do. And they're open about everything. And if somebody's giving them lots of money, they need to, to tell people that and say, okay, this, Test was sponsored by whoever, and and yeah, it's all about trust. It's all about fostering trust in the readership. Whoever's mm -hmm. consuming your your test data needs to believe you. And I um, I guess more of a a softer question there. So, if one of our listeners was kind of new into the industry, what would be mm. some kind of inspirational words you would share with them? It's very difficult. Yeah. Be be really clever. It's always been a big one. I've, that's the thing with, with both AMSO and with VB going to conferences, and you see all these these old hands that have been there for twenty years, and they they all know everybody and they're total experts. And then you get some nineteen year old whiz kid pops up and has some amazing idea, and you're like, wow, he's smart. It's, it's quite a hard thing to aim for, I guess. But you know, if 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 you have that opportunity. You, you, you're sharp enough and you can work hard enough and you can really make a splash. It's quite impressive. I think that's the um, yeah, uncompromising work ethic and upholding <laughs> yeah. your integrity. Working like, hard. Yeah. Working hard is, uh, is generally quite useful, especially in, in early days. But, uh, but yeah, and also I think getting to know people, mm. which I know is, is not necessarily a, a top skill in the IT field, but it's it's the only way to do things, really. You can't ever work in a vacuum. You have to work with other people, and whether those are you know colleagues on your team or you know an official rival on the other side of the world who just happens to be a bit friendly. The more people you know, the more resources you have. Basically, if you if you need to reach out in an emergency and say I'm stuck, I need some help, you, you kind of want someone to be there to say I can help. And you need to be that person yourself as well. So making those networks, very, very important. Thank you. And um, I, well, that kind of leads on to, to one of my questions now, which is for 
the other end of the spectrum. So kind of the seasoned seasoned industry veterans, the people that were already in some roles. What's what's something that we could all do a little bit better to improve the industry? I, I think it's the same, you know. I still th- I think it's collaboration. And I think that's even more important in in those people who are kind of at the top. Um, there is a, or there can be a tendency in some people to say, look, I'm, I'm the king now. I don't need to help other people because uh, I don't need other people to help me. But those are exactly the people that you do want to be, you know, passing on their, their wisdom and joining in things like AMPSO, any any collaborative effort across the industry needs those you know seasoned veterans just as much as it needs the the bright young whippersnappers amazing join in collaborate pay pay back all that help you got on the way up i love that as advice paying something back it's yeah just a a noble thing to do and an important thing to do i think Mm -hmm. yeah definitely well, I'm, um, I'm coming into my last couple of questions for you. I think we're about th- three to go. Um, the first one okay. is, what what is left on your to-do list? <laughs> um, well, I have an enormous to-do list, but it's it's mostly tiny stuff. It's like day to day. I don't, I don't, I'm not a big long-term planner. I don't, I've never had sort of five-year goals or anything like that. Um. I've always uh, had this idea of at some point taking like an extended period of time off. I've had that, you know, where you like leave one job and then you have like six months before the next job starts, which never quite managed. I don't think I've ever actually had more than a a weekend gap between employments. Gosh. So, uh, in fact, when I started at VB, I kind of overlapped with my, in fact, both my previous jobs have overlapped with the ones before. So I've not had any kind of break in between but um but obviously doing that would mean leaving AMSO, which i don't really want to do because it's quite good i quite like it so but maybe one day i'll, I'll get around to that but that could just be retirement so my, yeah my save it for then <laughs> yeah but that's that's kind of not the point though isn't it really yeah. you, you, the, the idea is to do it before then while you're still uh and decide if you want to go back or not i was a, i was talking to one of the um one of the serious bigwigs who uh, recently sold his company and retired and went home and decided he wanted to take up cooking. And after three weeks, his wife was like, get out of my kitchen. So <laughs> now he's, he set up a new company and is back working again. So he had uh, hit almost a month. Almost a month. That's, that's good going. I, I recently had a month off and I found by week four, I was kind of itchy. What do I do now? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think that's the, that's kind of the point of it, really, isn't it? Is that you have to take that time to figure out what it is you want to do. And I think that's probably why I've never had this any kind of long-term plans, is because I've never had enough time to think about them or to get to that position where I'm like, I've got nothing to do. What should I do? As opposed to, I've got nothing to do. Oh, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> you can have a breath. Well, no. it, it, I mean, that kind of leads nicely into my very final question for you. Um, and this was a question left from a, a previous guest on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were talking to kind of younger John back at the start of his career, um, mm-hmm. and you had to pick a completely different path, what would you do? I guess not completely different, but I would probably have focused more on the writing side because I do enjoy that. And I nowadays barely do much of it at all, really. But um, back when I was doing it properly, like 
couple of days a week. That was that was quite enjoyable. I quite like that, and I imagine I would like to have done more of it. I guess, mm. but I probably, I probably, hopefully, I will do at some point. But uh, yes, or that, or become a professional footballer. <laughs> I, I think I gave that one idea of about seventeen. So. That's a very different uh, career path. <laughs> yes. Uh, amazing. Um, well, that, that was all the questions I had for you today. I know we're, cool. we're kind of coming up on the hour. I really appreciate everything you've kind of shared today, John, and you've had like the most amazing story and career. Um, no worries. Thank you so much for everything you've done for the industry as well. And I was just wondering if people wanted to find out more about AMSO, if people wanted to find out more about your work, where, where would they go? Well, check out the AMSO website, amtso.org. It's all there. We've, we've just done a, a big... Uh, relaunch rebranding it's all beautiful and shiny these days and uh yeah or drop me a line john at amtso.org will reach me amazing very friendly on the emails thank you so much thanks for listening to the adventures of alice and bob podcast don't forget to rate review and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it